are listening to a message by Pastor David Guzik for Enduring Word. For more information about our ministry, please visit EnduringWord.com. Entebbe, Uganda, where I'm here in a hotel room. It's just kind of a normal hotel room. Uh, but we've had an amazing week, the last week, uh, serving at a pastor's conference. Actually, more particularly, it was a conference for pastors and their wives. Some wonderful people in the church family that I'm kind of a part of broader, uh, the, the Calvary Chapel church world, they decided some years ago that it would be a wonderful thing to have a time just to, to serve pastors and their wives. I think how it started was they just simply asked pastors, what could we do to help you? And they kind of found out that uh, these pastors are able to just have very little time to get away with their wife. And so a hotel was rented, a conference center there on the shores of the Nile River. It took place at Jinja, Uganda, which is right at the source of the Nile as it makes its way from Lake Victoria all the way, of course, to the Mediterranean Sea. So there at a uh, hotel and conference center there on the shores of the Nile River, we had a wonderful time gathering, serving, ministering to these pastors and their wives. Uh, There were, to my knowledge, about 70 couples there, so about 140 in total, as well as some staff. And a big part of the people there as well was a team headed up by my wife, Ingalil Guzik, who some of you know, she does dental missions. And she had a team of five people there, uh, gals that she's worked with for a long time and do wonderful work together. And they together served not only the attendees of the conference, but they also served uh, some of the staff there at the hotel and other people that they could just serve the dental needs, uh, cleaning, scaling, filling, some extractions, sealants, all the rest of it they did together. And it was a true, true blessing that they were able to do that. Uh, Very, very much appreciated. For myself, I was very much struck by my time meeting with these pastors. Uh, The last two weeks have really been the first time that I'd been to this particular part of the world. And just to see these pastors, how they serve the Lord, how they endure through some hardships, how they have a passion for the gospel, for planting churches, for remaining faithful to the Bible and to the calling God has given them. Uh, You may or may not know, but in some parts of Africa, the prosperity gospel is really common and really strong. And maybe other forms of Christianity that uh, maybe aren't technically prosperity gospel, but they're pretty light on a central focus on God's word and really trying to build God's people up through the expositional teaching of God's word. Well, in the church tradition that I come from, Calvary Chapel, uh, we're very, very strong on the idea of the expositional teaching of God's word. And all of these pastors feel that way. And some of them came from big cities. Some of them came from little villages. Some of them came, most of them came from Uganda that there was still a good number from Kenya, Tanzania, uh, other countries in this, in this general area. Uh, it was greatly impressive meeting these men. And I have to say, another thing that was a particular blessing for me was to fo- see how many of them 
were familiar with and had found benefit from my commentaries online. Uh, if you know me mainly through this YouTube channel, you may not know that I have an online commentary through the entire Bible, Genesis to Revelation, and it's absolutely free. There's no charge. We don't even have paid ads on the website. We don't have a VIP zone. Everything's open to everybody, and you just go there and you find the book of the Bible, the chapter of the Bible, and you can quickly find the commentary to what you want to look for. And it was, again, a, a great blessing to find that many of these pastors and their wives in their own ministry and just daily walk made access of the Enduring Word Bible Commentary. So that's what I've been doing for the last week. It's been a great time here with uh, my wife, Inga Lil, with uh, other people on the team, and we are looking forward to getting back home. We depart tomorrow, God willing, and if everything goes fine, next Thursday I'll be doing this live Q&A from my home in Santa Barbara. Uh, but today in Uganda and last week in Kenya have been very special times for us. So that's that. Now, before I get into questions that come from the live chat, because I don't properly have a lead question today. I hope you're submitting your questions and I'll get to them the very best I can. Our moderator will sort of prioritize them, pick some of the ones that he thinks would have the broadest value for our um, audience and uh, pass them on to me. He does that through text message. But I did want to make you aware of something that uh, later on this year, okay, I feel just a little bit embarrassed because I don't know the dates offhand. So let me look on my calendar. Uh, from October 4th through the 18th, although my calendar may be somewhere in the first half of October, we're having an Enduring Word cruise of the Mediterranean and Bible lands. And we've got stops in Ephesus, stops at Jerusalem, in Galilee, in Alexandria, it's going to be a tremendous, tremendous stops in Athens. That's where the tour begins, the cruise begins. The reason why I'm explaining this to you is that we have just had a balcony room come open. Excuse me, I'm looking here at my computer to get the details. We have one available balcony room that came available for the cruise. I think we have about 120 or so people already coming. But this one balcony room became available and it needs to be filled this week or we're going to lose it. So, hey, if you're interested, what you need to do is go to EnduringWord.com slash cruise. Go to that web page, EnduringWord.com slash cruise, and uh, you'll get the information for it. So obviously you can tell by the date this is, it's sort of a limited time kind of thing. Uh, but if any of you are interested, we want you to know we think it would be a great thing if somebody from our Enduring Word family could be a part of this cruise and uh, join us with that. So um, we'll get to questions here as few of, as soon as a few of them start coming through. Uh, we'll address these questions the best we can. I, I do want to let you know one other thing that's kind of important to me. I just heard a few hours ago that a man I respect and love in ministry has gone home to be with the Lord. Uh, his name is Peter Ville, and Peter was the pastor of Koinonia Gemeinde, 
or Calvary Chapel, Hanover, for many years. He retired from that uh, position some years ago, and uh, a godly man named Pastor Jurg took over for him. But I just heard a few days ago, or a few hours ago, that a few days ago, Peter Will had passed. And uh, I just want to honor his memory. He's a man of God who served the Lord and did a lot of good for God's cause at that congregation in Hanover, Calvary Chapel, Hanover, uh, in the broader context of God's work in Germany and over Europe. And uh, he was certainly a man who loved his family and who blessed them. So keep the Will family, Will uh, is how you would pronounce it in German, but W-I-L. Keep the, the Peter Will family, uh, his wife Gabi and their children in your prayers at this time of their loss. And um, his godly man who loved the Lord and did a wonderful job there at uh, Calvary Chapel, Hanover. All right, with that, let me get to the questions that are coming in. Uh, K-H, I guess I'm pronouncing that name or screen name right, uh, asks this. When John says in Luke chapter 3, verse 5, and every mountain and every hill will be brought low, is that a literal meaning? Okay, Cage, I'm so glad you asked this question. What you're doing is you're quoting here from Luke chapter 3, verses 4, 5, and 6, where Luke is describing the ministry of John the Baptist. And he's describing the ministry of John the Baptist in reference to uh, passages in the, go- in the gospel, the book of Isaiah, almost said the gospel of Isaiah. Uh, sometimes Bible teachers will call Isaiah the fifth gospel because it speaks so much about Jesus. But here in these chapters in Isaiah, it speaks of the coming work of the Messiah and in particular this preparatory work for the coming of the Messiah. And the preparatory work of the Messiah would be to make the roads straight for, for the people who want to come to the Messiah, the people who want to see his great work, the people who want to come and get right with the Messiah and receive everything that the Messiah has to give. The idea is to make a pathway straight. And so it's the building of a highway. Uh, many times in the modern world, we take good roads for granted. But a good road is a marvelous thing. It, it really increases... Um, trade and travel and commerce and all sorts of things. I I have to say, uh, the last few weeks in Kenya and in Uganda, for the most part, I've been very impressed with the roads. Uh, The roads were a lot better than I thought they would be. Now, of course, when there weren't roads, and there were times when we had to travel on dirt roads, that was a lot more problematic. But uh, oftentimes, the paved roads were a lot better than I thought they would be. Okay, so anyway, The picture here is of making a ready path for the Messiah and to the Messiah. So um, really the idea here, uh, Kayich, is that no, he's not talking about literal road building. What he's talking about is the fulfillment of these passages having to do with uh, the coming of the Messiah as quoted from the book of Isaiah. I'm sure you just find very quickly, it's Isaiah chapter 47, 48, something like that. It's a little bit fresh in my mind because I've just been reviewing those passages lately for a special uh, writing project that I'm working on right now. 
So anyway, that, that's really, it, it, it's not talking about literal road building there. It's talking about building a path for the Messiah and a path to the Messiah, quoting from these very specific passages in the book of Isaiah. Thanks for your question there, Cage. Next question comes from Andrea, or Andrea, who asks, in Luke chapter 10, verse 4, why were the 70 who were sent out not to greet anyone on the way? Luke chapter 10, verse 4 says this, Jesus told his disciples, carry neither money bag, knapsack, nor sandals, and greet no one along the road. (laughs) Andrea, I could see why you would ask this question. Was Jesus commanding his disciples to be rude in their evangelistic work? But that's really not the point of it here. What Jesus is doing through that instruction and similar instructions that he gives to him, such as the thing of uh, money bag, knapsack, sandals, uh, greet no one along the road, is all in line with those. Jesus is speaking in a way that would give a sense of urgency to their message. Look, in the ancient world and in that part of the world, it was very common when uh, two travelers met on the road or two groups of travelers that they would have very long extended greetings with one another. A part of this was just a local flavor, customs of the day, but there was also the phenomenon of just breaking up the monotony of walking long distances between cities, oftentimes alone. So you would sort of break up the monotony of the day by having a long conversation greeting those who you met on the road. What Jesus is doing here is he's telling his disciples, no, the mission I'm giving you involves urgency. So again, so to speak, I don't want you hanging around taking a break for a half hour every time you meet somebody along the road to give your long, elaborate greetings and finding out about them and and them finding out about you. You've got a mission to do. I'm calling you to go out and preach the way that you should preach. So really, that's the idea there, Andrea, and that's why Jesus gave that specific instruction. Our next question comes from Brianna, who asks, why do people charge fees for worship and Bible conferences and concerts when the gospel is free? Well, Brianna, uh, that's a good question. And, um, but part of me is very sympathetic to your answer. And part of me um, understands why people charge. Look, the, the gospel is free and it should be presented free. But when there's a charge for things, such as a worship venue, a Bible conference, a concert. Um, When there's a charge to these things, it's a charge for the production. I hope, Brianna, that there's plenty of worship, churches having worship services near where you are, where you can go and they're not going to charge a fee. But if you're going to see some famous band with their awesome stage production with the huge sound system and all the accoutrements to that, then, yeah, that's going to cost. And let's face it, probably the musicians, the managers, the agents, all of that are taking a pretty big chunk out of that as well. So I I sympathize with that. I, I don't like that. And I think it's very important 
for myself and my own calling that I have to not be concerned about charging. So when I go somewhere to speak, I never charge an honorarium. People are often kind, uh, but I never require an honorarium when I go and speak somewhere. And our website, Enduring Word, we offer everything for free. Our, uh, well, no, let me reserve. We don't offer everything for free. I'll explain that for a moment. But we offer all our commentary for free, all our audio and visual resources for free. Uh, the apps are for free. Of course, the YouTube content, the version content, just what we have, we put out there for free. We don't have any VIP levels, any of that. Now, there are things that we require people to pay for, and that's like the books that we publish. If you want one of my commentaries in print format or in Kindle format, look, I'll just be honest, that's going to cost you. Not because there's a charge for the commentary itself. You can get that for free online. But if you want that on pages and in ink, then there's an expense for that. So um, I get the sense that you're getting at here in the question, um, Brianna. You, you want to know, is it right that people are making money? And look, let's face it, sometimes big money off of those things. And I'm uncomfortable with a lot of that myself. But really, the best um, solution I think we have is to not support it. And then those people who do those things, it's before the Lord that they answer to. Really, it's not before us. Next question comes from Diane, who asks, Good afternoon, Pastor. Is it possible for someone to be saved who is on a ventilator, conscious, and hearing the name of Jesus being prayed over them? Diane, um, there's a lot about a question such as yours that can't be answered. But just in the way that you present the question, I would say yes. And the main sense here is that you say that the person is conscious. Uh, look, if a person is conscious, I believe that God can communicate to him. Now, I, I think that it's possible that God can communicate to people who are unconscious. Look, I don't really know, and I'm not, please, I have no medical training. You know, somebody who's a neurologist or, or knows these things at a deeper level may think I'm crazy, and maybe I am, but just as I've thought about this, I've thought, is it possible that God could communicate to somebody in a coma? It, they can't communicate to anybody in the external world, but perhaps on a spiritual yet real level, God communicates with that person. Is it possible? Yes, I suppose it's possible. But certainly if a person is conscious, even if they're on a ventilator, and if a person is conscious and they can make a response of faith, and when I say response, that response of faith doesn't have to be a spoken word if they're unable to speak. It doesn't have to be the raising of a hand or walking down the aisle. Their demonstration of faith and repentance, correspondingly, can be real uh, even though it's unable to be made vocally or with a lifestyle that lives it out because, let's face it, they're in a hospital bed. Listen, I would just put it to you this way, Diane. I'm sure that we're going to meet some surprising people in heaven 
who trusted Christ in unusual circumstances that will make us full of wonder and full of surprise when we get to heaven. So I hope that's helpful for you, Diane, but I I don't want to underestimate God's ability to communicate with the human heart, with the human spirit, even, um, uh, even when a person is outwardly unconscious or unresponsive. Look, I, I don't know much about how all this works, but I just see that Brandy did a super chat. So thank you for that, Brandy. Uh, God bless you for that. Um, let me go on to the next question from Anahui, who asked this question. In Genesis, there are two lights. One was on the first day, verses 3 through 5. The second light was on the fourth day, uh, verses 14 through 19. Was the first light Jesus and the darkness Satan and his evil angels? Anahui, no, I don't think so. I think what you're doing there is sort of alluding, or maybe you have in mind directly or indirectly, some of the ideas that, look, I'm not going to say these are impossible, but they're certainly not clearly detailed in the scripture. The the idea that um, after Satan's fall, in some way, he was trying to resist God's work of creation. There are hints, in my estimation, some people believe it's quite clear, but I I think there's hints of this in the scripture without really making it clear in any um, significant way. So I I don't look at that in that way, Anahui. Um, Look, where there's light, it's it's God shining forth his light. And, And darkness, especially there in the creation story, doesn't necessarily have a demonic association. Uh, that's my quick take on it, Anahui. You know, sometimes if I think over something longer and study it deeper, I might have a different thought, but that's my quick take on it. Uh, Diane, again, thank you for your super chat. I don't know why we're getting a couple super chats here, and that's very kind of you all to do that. Um, Tyler presents this question. Before I get to Tyler's question, let me just... Um, remind you of something. I'm speaking to you from Uganda. I'm not in the west coast of California where I usually speak to you. I'm not in Kenya where I uh, spoke to you last week. And I'm not in Germany where, God willing, two weeks from today I'm going to be speaking to you. This is a busy travel season for my wife, Ingalil, and myself. Uh, Right now I'm in Uganda, in Entebbe. Look, I'm not in any place, you know, I'm not out on a safari or out in a village or, you know, in some, you know, kind of place. I'm, I'm in a hotel, not very far from the airport. Uh, but we're here because we've just finished a marvelous two-week trip. The first week was in Kenya, visiting several places. The last week has been uh, in the city of Jinja, there on the Nile River uh, in Uganda. And We had a wonderful time ministering to pastors and wives, and my wife and her dental team were here as well, uh, just doing a blessed, blessed work for the people of the conference. There were about 140 pastors and their wives in attendance, and uh, it was a blessing for them, both, I think, the conference itself, but then the dental care that they were able to receive. Okay, let me continue on here with the question from Tyler, who asks... 
were the apostles speaking in an unknown heavenly language in Acts chapter 2, verse 8. Meaning, did people hear the apostles in their own languages from the gift of interpretation? Tyler, uh, I'm just going to be very straight with you. We kind of wish that we were told more about some of these specifics in the biblical record than we have. Uh, We don't have a ton of real specifics on this. So I'll give you my best understanding of it. You're quoting Acts chapter 2, verse 8, where the people in the crowd who heard the disciples speaking, they say, um, how is it that we hear each in our own language in which we were born? And then they go on to list um, many different languages that they heard, uh, probably 15 different languages. And the whole idea here is that what they say is they say they heard them speaking the wonderful works of God. That's in verse 11. Well, um, Tyler, I, I just do my best to take the whole counsel of God, to take what different passages of Scripture say about um, about uh, the gift of tongues and its use and sort of put it all together. Uh, for me, very important in this consideration is 1 Corinthians chapter 14, I believe it's verse 4, where Paul says, he who speaks in an unknown tongue speaks not to man, but to God. And that makes me take a look back at what happened on the day of Pentecost in Acts chapter 2. And it makes me believe that those who were speaking in these unknown tongues were not speaking to men, but to God. Again, according to that principle there in 1 Corinthians chapter 14, we often think that, uh, or it's commonly thought that the purpose of the gift of tongues is to enable people to preach to others in a language that they've never heard. Now listen, I I don't doubt God has the power to grant that kind of miracle. There's really no doubt about that. But that's not what the gift of tongues is about. Again, 1 Corinthians 14.4, He who speaks in an unknown tongue speaks not unto men, but to God. So what the people heard on the day of Pentecost, Acts chapter 2, was they overheard the people speaking to God praises, as it says there in verse 10, uh, declaring the wonderful works of God. They were praising God. And the other thing I find notable is the Bible says that there were 120 present and they were all speaking in these unknown tongues. And there's listed about 15 languages that they say they heard being spoken. Well, no doubt there were a lot of people speaking languages of praise to God that nobody knew what was being spoken. It was just not present. So again, your question specifically is, um, were they speaking an unknown heavenly language? It doesn't have to be. Uh, They could be speaking human languages, simply human languages that nobody present could understand. But of course, many of the languages that were being spoken were languages that could be understood. Uh, And so that's why they can understand them without the gift of interpretation. Because somebody, in speaking in their unknown tongue, they were speaking in the language of the Parthenians, and there were Parthenians present, and they didn't need any supernatural gift to understand it. They could understand, and they could hear them speaking 
the marvelous works of God, in other words, praises to God along the way. Hope that answer is helpful for you there, Tyler. I'm going to go on to the next question from Alfredo as soon as I take a drink of water here. Alfredo asks, What are your thoughts on the Eastern Orthodox Church? Are they apostate? Alfredo, let me begin right away by saying, No, they're not apostate. Um, There are many wonderful believers in the Eastern Orthodox Church. And when you say the Eastern Orthodox Church, we're encompassing all its different branches. The Greek Orthodox, the Armenian Orthodox, the uh, the uh, Russian Orthodox, the, you know, we could just go on and, and list the different, the Syrian Orthodox, the different um, national, or if you want to say uh, orders or divisions of the Orthodox Communion is sometimes what it's called. Um, no, they're not apostate. There's wonderful believers within that. Now, I have to say that the things, that some of the things that seem very important and very meaningful to Orthodox believers are not as important and meaningful to me. Um, Their emphasis on icons is not something that's meaningful to me at all. Uh, Their emphasis on certain ceremonies and liturgies and the incense and the uh, vestments that are worn and the decorations. Uh, Look, honestly, it just doesn't do a thing for me. And so um, it's really not meaningful for drawing me to a closer relationship with Jesus Christ. But they're certainly not apostate. Um, to my understanding, the Orthodox churches, the Orthodox communion, don't emphasize doctrine in the same way Protestants or perhaps evangelicals might. But the doctrine that they have is is generally biblical. Of course, they would insist that it's entirely biblical, and I understand that. I'm not there to to debate that. But no, I I would not regard them as apostate. Let me say one more thing about um, this Alfredo. I understand that there are people in Orthodox churches who are not born again at all. That for them, their Christian faith is really just a matter of tradition. And it's really sort of an empty, vain faith. That's true. There are people like that in Orthodox churches. There are priests in the Orthodox church who are not born again and actually are doing a disservice to their church and to their people. That's absolutely true. But let me tell you something. Um, It's the same in Protestantism. (laughs) There's people in Protestant churches who uh, their religion, their faith, is basically a dead traditionalism. There's people in the Protestant world, or pastors, I should say, who are unfaithful to their calling. So it's not a matter of which group you belong to. It's a matter of whether or not an individual has a real abiding transforming faith in Jesus Christ as Lord. And I know I said that would be the last thing I'd say, but I'm compelled to say one more thing. Look, uh, it's been said, and I don't know how accurately someone can measure such things, but it's been said that in the 20th century, more people died for the sake of Jesus Christ than any... um, 
than any uh, than any previous century. So here's one: if it's true that the 20th century has had more martyrs in it than all previous century combined, that's the the figure that's thrown out there then we need to recognize that it is our orthodox brothers and sisters who have borne the burden of that. Most of those who have been murdered in the 20th century for being Christians came from parts of the world where the Orthodox Church defined most of Christianity. And for that alone, I believe that the Orthodox Church deserves credit. They have borne a lot of the brunt of martyrdom in the 20th century and before. Okay, thank you for that question there, uh, Alfredo. Let me go to the next question from Philip. How do I help someone move from an intellectual relationship with God to being willing to accept the personal, intimate relationship that God desires? especially when the deep paternal father wounds are present in them. Philip, obviously this is a difficult thing that, you know, no one can do this for another person. Nobody can fix this, so to speak. It just doesn't work like that. But I I would suggest two things to you. First of all, obviously, and I know you're doing this, but I'm just saying this for the sake of saying the obvious, pray. Pray for that person. You know, sometimes it's said that the biggest distance in the world is the distance from the head to the heart. That 18 inches or whatever it is sometimes seems to be the biggest distance in the world. And we can't have a relationship with God that's only a relationship in our mind. It generally has to be something as well that's of the heart. So pray for them. But in addition... I would just simply speak with them in daily conversation. You know, not that you're trying to preach a sermon to them, but just in daily conversation. Speak to them about the reality of your relationship with God. And and by doing so, and I'm not trying to say in a phony or a flamboyant way, but just I think that as you do that, you God could use you to make them jealous. God could use you to make them say, hey, that's the kind of relationship I want with God. I want God to answer my prayers. I want to feel that I'm actually drawing closer to God in real communion with him. Uh, I think that you have the potential, God has the potential to do this through you, to really provoke this person, brother, sister, whatever it is, to some godly jealousy in their own relationship with God. So you just be very free, very open, not in a phony, put upon, preaching a sermon kind of way, but just talk in a very natural way about your relationship, your experience with God on a day-to-day basis. That would be my suggestion for you there, Philip. Going on to the next question from Tony, who asks... When the angel of the Lord appeared in the Old Testament, it was Jesus. Who would you think spoke to Adam? Did they just hear, or do you think that God showed himself visibly? Tony, um, okay, again, like I end up saying many times in questions, this this may be my most frequent answer to questions that come up on this uh, Q&A. We can't say for sure. And the only reason why I bring that up is I always want to be very measured to not be 
certain where the Bible isn't clear. Look, I'm all for some speculation about what might be in the Bible or a hint at this or a suggestion of that. I'm all for us discussing that as long as we realize when we're talking about something right from the Bible and when we're speaking of something that actually um, we're not entirely clear on. Now, the strongest case for God being in some kind of physical presence with Adam and Eve, and we would say this, if God appears in some sort of physical presence in the Old Testament, then it is a pre-incarnate appearance of Jesus Christ. So I think that's just a very important thing to notice here, that this pre-incarnate appearance of Jesus Christ uh, is, is the only way God would be, because God the Holy Spirit is spirit and not visible. And of God the Father, it says that no man has seen God at any time. But the, the closest we come to a statement saying that God appeared to Adam in some bodily form is in the book of Genesis, where it says that the Lord walked with Adam and Eve, I believe, uh, in the cool of the day. And that certainly implies a physical presence. I, I don't think it categorically, clearly, beyond any doubt, states it, but I would say that it implies it. So for me, um, Tony, I don't think it's enough to say, yes, we know for sure, but there certainly is that suggestion that God appeared to Adam and Eve in some sort of bodily presence where it says that he walked with them in the cool of the day. You can look that up in the book of Genesis. Where is it? Chapter 2 or 3. Next question comes from Rose, who asks this question. Um, What are your thoughts on why natural disasters happen and all the people dying from them? I was questioned by non-Christians on it recently and realized I didn't have a great answer. Rose, um, there's two answers to that question. Um, Well, maybe there's three answers. One is that God has created a cause and effect world where when certain things happen, it will affect certain other things happen. There are causes that make an effect. And so where there's a super low pressure zone in some part of an ocean that will draw great winds, the winds will move in a certain way, and and storms happen according to a... A a tornado happens according to cause and effect. There are just certain things happening in the atmosphere and the weather patterns that make for a tornado. And and sometimes we wish that God would not have created a cause and effect world, but he did. Um, And I think the alternative would be even worse because that would be a completely unpredictable, chaotic world. But we don't live in that. God has given us a world that is somewhat reliable. I don't want to exaggerate it, but through its cause and effect principle. Okay, that's one level. Here's the second level. Such things happen in the world because of the fall, because of sin. The Bible says that because of Adam's sin and the sin of humanity in general, that creation was subjected to futility. 
and that the redemption of man uh, in God's great plan of the ages will have an effect not only on those people, but on creation itself, that creation will be rescued from its bondage. And I think this is very important to realize that in some sense, every deadly tornado, every killer hurricane has some line that's traced back to the fall of humanity. Um, this is why we have um, uh, this, this universe where um, storms happen and tragedies happen and people die. It's not because of any one person's particular sin, um, but rather it's because of just a general sense of sin and its effects in the world. That's the second reason. First reason, cause and effects. Second reason, general effects of sin. Third reason is God is in control of all things. Look, if a, if a hurricane comes and people die, God has allowed it. God could have done it differently. And so we don't say that to blame God. God forbid that we would do such a thing. We don't say that to blame God, but we do it to say that um, God has a plan for redemption and good even in that kind of tragedy. So um, that's really the best way. I give those three answers. Cause and effect world, uh, the general effects of sin, and God's ultimate control and his promise to use all things for good uh, for those who love God and those are the called according to his purpose. Next question comes from Stacy. Um, Stacy says, if we are called to prophesy, what does that mean? Or excuse me, what does that look like today at church? Well, Stacy, um, of course, this is an area that is filled with controversy among Christians. There's a fair segment of the Christian world that believes that God would never speak to a believer today in or through some kind of prophetic word. And then, of course, there's other segments of believers in God's family today who kind of go crazy on the idea. And I would say, to some measure, they abuse it. But if you take away those who deny such a thing at all, and if you take away the crazy kind of extreme fringe out there, I think a biblical position it isn't necessarily in the middle of those positions because we're not trying to look for some middle ground to strike it. But we just say that what the Bible says is that, yes, there are times when God does speak supernaturally to people in and through and maybe to a congregation. I'll never forget something I read from an early Christian writer named Tertullian. Tertullian was a great theologian who lived in North Africa in the 3rd and 4th century I'm blanking just a bit, but in the early church period. Second, and, no, third and fourth century. Um, Tertullian described the workings of a prophet at his church services. He said, and I'm paraphrasing the passage, of course. He said, we've got a woman in our midst who's a prophet. God speaks to her angels. We don't really know, but she hears supernaturally. And Tertullian said, God speaks to her during the church service. And when the service is over, if she thinks she has something meaningful to say, she shares it with the church's pastors and elders. 
and they kind of discern it and see if there's anything that God would have to say for them, to them from it. I think that's a very godly exercise, the gift of prophecy. You know, sometimes people regard some moving of prophecy or the prophetic as sort of a opportunity to exalt themselves or draw attention to themselves. And it's really unnecessary. It's really not desired. But if a person feels that God has spoken a word to them through a congregation, I would just say simply this. Why don't you go to the pastor or the elders and say, Pastor, elders, I know you might think this is weird. And I'm not trying to put any pressure on you. But I'm just here to tell you, I believe God's given me something to say. I'm going to say it and then leave it with you. It's going to be God's work after that. I think that's an entirely valid way. I think also we underestimate the way that something like the prophetic can be used just in personal ministry, one to another. If I'm sort of speaking with somebody, hearing what they're going through, maybe trying to give them some wisdom from God, going to pray for them, I'm constantly seeking God for his wisdom. And and, and most of the time that wisdom is going to flow from God's word directly to them. That's our foundation is always the word of God. But at the same time, if God were to give something more of a spontaneous word from me to them, then I wouldn't hold back in doing it. So I hope that makes some sense to you there. Uh, Stacy. Let me get to my next question from Gal, um, who asks, what is the main significance to us today as we read about the instructions concerning a leper who got healed in Leviticus chapter 14? All right, Gal, I'm going to do something that I don't often do on this question and answer program, but I am mainly going to recommend I want you to go to the Enduring Word Bible Commentary on Leviticus chapter 14, and I want you to read what I say about that there. Because I deal with that directly, and I show how the ceremony to cleanse a leper in so many ways, taken from Leviticus chapter 14, points to the cleansing work of Jesus Christ for believers. Um, I I think this is something that can really be helpful for you. So go to Leviticus chapter 14. I think our moderator just put the link up there. Good on you there, Nathan, for doing that. Um, Go to that gal, and you'll see how I explain there, because that's the quick answer to what you're doing. The ceremony for the cleansing of a leper points to the work of Jesus Christ in cleansing his people in an incredible and powerful way. Read all about it there in my commentary on Leviticus chapter 14. Next question comes from uh, Tunnel Banan Shugotre, our Swedish friend there, who says, hello from Sweden. Uh, Do you believe that the fire in hell will be literal or metaphorical? Can't the soul not feel any physical pain there? Okay, Tunnel Banan Shugotre, I've got two things to say to you in regard to that. Okay, I can't say for sure if the fire in hell will be literal or non-literal. I can tell you this, it will be real. Whether it's simply describing some agony that could not be described in any other way, or whether it is actually in some source a fire, 
I don't know. So something can be real without it necessarily being literal. Maybe fire is the only vocabulary that God could adequately communicate this to us. Um, so it's real, and that's the important thing to say. And I'll, I'll, I want you to always remember this too. Whenever a metaphor is used, the reality is greater than the metaphor. So if somebody wants to say that the fire in hell is only metaphorical, okay, I get it, fine. But understand the reality of what a person in hell experiences would be even worse than the metaphor of fire. And then one final thing for you there, Tuno Danan Chukotre. I want you to understand that you talk about the soul not being able to feel physical pain. Jesus spoke in the Gospel of John of the resurrection of condemnation. We often don't appreciate it, but there will be, in a sense, two resurrections. There will be a resurrection unto eternal life, and there will be a resurrection unto condemnation. And those eternally separated from God will have resurrection bodies that are fit for that state. So, Jesus spoke of that. Okay, let's see what the other questions are here. Um, Stacy asks, how is Uganda? And Dominican says, enjoy your stay in Uganda. Listen, I've enjoyed my time in Uganda. Um, the work that I, together with a good friend of mine named David Grizzani, man who's been a good friend for a long time. Matter of fact, he was a Bible college teacher of my own and Ingalil, even before we um, knew each other, uh, many, many years ago at Calvary Chapel Bible College in Twin Peaks, California. Uh, Dave was the one who sort of uh, was my entree to this conference, and uh, through him, the invitation came to me to join him and be a part of the teaching ministry of this. And then my wife and her dental team did an amazing work, not only among the 140 people who came to the conference, but also a lot of the staff of the conference center and hotel where we were. So I'm, I'm very pleased to be in Uganda. It's great to see East Africa for the first time uh, in both Kenya and Uganda where we've been. I'm enjoying it a lot. So thank you for asking that. And uh, thank you for your kind words. Um, I think we are at our lightning round. Okay. Better take a drink of water before we hit the lightning round. Okay. Are we ready for this? Uh, Patrick asks, is the celebration of birthdays godly? Where did it originate and should it be avoided? Patrick, since it's the lightning round, I'm going to speak kind of fast. Um, celebration of birthdays can be entirely godly. The Bible doesn't command it. The Bible doesn't forbid it. It is up to the conscience of each individual believer whether or not they want to do it. If somebody wants to sell, if a believer wants to celebrate birthdays, God bless them. Let them do it in the Lord. If a believer does not want to celebrate birthdays, God bless them and let them not do it in the Lord. Uh, we don't put commands or bind the conscience of fellow believers on things that the Bible does not either forbid or command. So um, I don't have no idea when the origins of um, uh, the origins of birthday celebrations are, but they are what they are. Uh, 
Bradford, David asks, does God receive money? Should I take uh, 3,000 Kenyan shillings to a pastor to help my, or to help my immediate poor neighbor? Bradford, um, thank you for your question. I was in Kenya last week and enjoyed it so much. And I want you to understand, there is a sense in which God receives money. But from the way you describe your situation, it sounds like God is putting it on your heart that you should give it to your immediate poor neighbor. Um, Bradford, do that. Do that. Um, There will be a time and a place for you to give to the church. By the way, I think that's how we should think of it. We don't give to the pastor. We give to the church. And pastors are sometimes unethical improper in the way that they receive people's tithes and offerings. So, Bradford, it sounds to me like the Holy Spirit is already speaking to you about this act of generosity that you want to do. Uh, Just from the way you present this to me, I would recommend to you that you give those 3,000 Kenyan shillings to your neighbor who is in need. Next question comes from Agnes, who asks... If the flood destroyed all life, how can there still be Nephilim in Canaan when the Twelve went to investigate the promised land? Someone suggested that they might have been the wives of Noah's sons. Agnes, I don't think so. I understand the issue that you're dealing with, and there's been a lot of people who've made suggestions about this. Here's my explanation of it. And again, Agnes, you... I understand what I'm going to share with you is a bit speculative, but to me, it fits the evidence well enough. I believe that the people who were called Nephilim after the flood were not true Nephilim, but they were simply named so in sort of the memory, in sort of the, uh, the, the remembrance of the Nephilim that existed before the flood. They, they were large, fearsome people And people said, oh, they're like the Nephilim, and they called them Nephilim. Um, I believe that the true, so to speak, Nephilim were ended at the flood. And any of those that were called that afterwards were really done almost in memory of or tribute to or likeness to the true Nephilim that lived before the flood. Hope that's an answer for you there. Uh, James asks... The next time you are in the Miami area, would you consider visiting your church? I watched your sermon online at Calvary Chapel, Fort Lauderdale, and would love for you to come to Calvary, Miami Beach. Um, Look, James, I'm not sure, but I am going to be in Miami in August. I'm going to be doing a young adults conference, uh, and I think I'm going to be speaking at a church. So um, I will be in the Miami area later on this year. Um, Carol, thank you, though, for your kind words. Uh, Carolyn asks, uh, why was the church in shock or doubt when Peter knocked on the door when they were praying on his behalf while in prison? I thought that they were praying for God to answer them. Now God answered, and yet they were shocked. Carolyn, you put your finger right on the issue there in Acts. What is it? Acts chapter, I don't know, four, five, six, where that account is held. Um, It is a remarkable occurrence, isn't it? Where the church is earnestly praying for Peter to be released from prison, and then God releases Peter from prison, and the church doesn't believe it. Well, Carolyn, the the reason why the church is like that is because 
they're just like us. Sometimes, or maybe if you want to say oftentimes, weak in faith and needing a lot of help from the Lord. So, um, yes, uh, sometimes we're almost uncomfortable with how similar the early church was to us. There's a very simple answer to it, Carolyn. They're weak in faith, just like us. And doesn't that give us comfort, though, to know that um, if the early church shared our weaknesses, then the Lord allowing, we can share their strengths. All right, next question comes from Brandy. Uh, Pastor, with all this canceling of Christian online teaching, how will I be able to acquire your teachings? Well, Brandy, um, uh, I hope that our content will continue to be available on the channels on which it normally is right now on YouTube. If for some reason we were canceled on YouTube, people could always get our content directly from our website, EnduringWord.com. You know, every video that we post up on YouTube, we have our own copies of it. So if for some reason it was taken down from YouTube, we could post it again on our own website. So Brandy, bookmark that website, EnduringWord.com. And then also the app that we have available on the uh, Apple App Store or on Google Play, wherever it is you get your apps for either Apple devices or Android devices. And... uh, Our content would be available through links on the website and through the app, even if it was not available on YouTube or similar channels. Uh, Suji asks, Hi, I have one question. Jesus said that his disciples would do miracles like healing and casting out demons, but why am I not able to do it? Is it because I am not his disciple yet and just a follower? Suji, Your question actually could have several different answers. I cannot give you one answer. Maybe it's because uh, God just hasn't seen fit to work through you to do the miraculous. Maybe there is something yet that God wants to develop in you in discipleship. That's entirely possible. Maybe there's other things that God wants to emphasize in your life. So I don't think there's any one answer to that question. But I would say, don't be distressed by this. If you see a person in need, a person who needs healing, a person who's possessed by a dynamic spirit, then by all means, pray for that person. But the miracle is not your responsibility. The miracle is God's responsibility. So I hope you can take that to heart and um, not put pressure on yourself to make it feel like you're the one who has to perform some kind of miracle. Brandy, you do not. The miracles are God's responsibility. We just seek to make ourselves willing and available vessels if he wants to do such a work. All right, friends, that's it for the lightning round. That means it's it for today's question and answer time. I'm so pleased that you could join us live from Uganda. I can't believe it. Here I am in Uganda, a hotel room, and I'm speaking to you Tomorrow, going to get on an airplane, and I'll be home Saturday evening. And God willing, and if we live next Thursday, I will be with you from my home on the west coast of California. Uh, I just pray you can join us then. Thank you for joining us today. Thank you for being a part of our Q&A. Thank you for your prayers. I know some of you or many of you have prayed for this uh, 
missions trip that we've been on very brief missions, uh, uh, both in Kenya and Uganda. Let me assure you of something. God has marvelously answered your prayers. He's used the team, both my preaching, he's used the dental team in amazing ways. He's kept us safe, he's kept us joyful, he's kept us useful for his kingdom. Thank you for your prayers. And I look forward to next week when you can join us again. Bye-bye. You've been listening to a message by Pastor David Guzik for Enduring Word. For more information about our ministry and how to grow in your relationship with Jesus, please visit EnduringWord.com.